Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, listeners and family of Everyday Folks Radio. This is Billy B.J. Jones, author and creator of Everyday Folks Radio and Everyday Folks Books. Today is Thursday, March 7th, 2019, and this is a special segment of Everyday Folks. I thank you so much for tuning in and listening. Now, and if any time you'd like to speak to me or my esteemed guests, you're always welcome to call in at 347 537-539-5372. Again, that call-in number is 347-539-5372. And if you prefer not to speak to us, if you're a little shy, or just would like to share your general comments, requests, or questions, you may email me at my open inbox at this time, which is everydayfolkslisten at gmail.com. Again, that is everydayfolkslisten at gmail.com. And lastly, I know many of you are also probably at work right now, and you probably have a mobile device readily available to you. So you're welcome to reach me at any of my social media feeds under my name on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Before we get started, I'd like to give a special shout out to a number of individuals out in the local community who help make this work here at Everyday Folks possible. First and foremost is my colleague, Anike S., whose show, Journey into Passion, will be airing again this upcoming Saturday. And her segment is titled, One Word, Three Letters, Yet. If you want to know more, you got to read her bio. She has some amazing shows, and I know this segment is going to be very special. So props to you, Indike, and wishing you all the best. And also, for those of you who are in Miami on the 23rd of this month, which is a Saturday from 1 to 3 p.m., you're welcome to come and meet me and other esteemed members of the South Florida Rights Association. We will be at the Capital One Cafe in Coral Gables off of Miracle Mile. And I will be facilitating a panel discussion about writing careers. And each of the panelists is, is an esteemed member, not only of the writing community, but of the intellectual community of independent thinking and creativity. So definitely a great conversation about writing and also a great opportunity for networking. Now, enough about those things. I'd like to get to my esteemed guest. With me today is truly, of all the phenomenal women I've met in my, my professional career, this talented woman knows no bounds, and her talents are endless. So Candace Hunter was born in Georgetown, Guyana, and raised in Washington, D.C. And I love this statement about her because she's so candid and true to herself. She's excelled and failed in leadership, and she believes both of these experiences prepare her for the success that she lives today. And here's an interesting quote. The system barriers, which are often part of a value system that we assimilate into, aren't even evidently obvious to us. She sees this as a core part of where the higher education system functions today. But even more so, if you read her title and seen her, her lovely photo on our promo, you recognize that she serves in dual capacities. One, she is a, an esteemed PhD candidate at an institution of higher learning. And secondly, she is a senior director of human resources. 
So we're speaking here of a phenomenal woman who has seen both sides of the fence, not only from the administrative side, but also from the faculty side and perspective in terms of understanding the phenomenon that she's discussing. Candace earned a bachelor's degree in psychology from George Washington University and a master's of business administration from Florida International University. Her PhD currently, she's a PhD candidate in business psychology at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology at Washington, D.C. And her dissertation topic, hence our discussion today, I thought was the most prolific. Her dissertation seeks to examine the difference in perceived organizational culture, personal values, and person-organization fit on derailment among senior women administrators in public research universities. And, listen to this, to discover if there are differences in these attributes among women who derail and those who do not. I have spoken enough, and I'd like to hear, want you to hear in her own very words, welcome to Everyday Folks BJ Speaks, Candace Hunter. Thank you, Dr. Joe. I'm really so excited to be here with you today to talk about not only a timely topic within leadership, mm-hmm. culture, and gender, but just also to um, dialogue with somebody I know who's been in the higher education space for a long time and, and understands this also from a leadership perspective as well as uh, a faculty perspective and a scholarly perspective as well. So thank you for having me. You are very welcome. And I'd like to share, if I may, Candace, just a little tidbit of how we know each other. So Candace and I both worked at a major higher, ed- higher education institution here in America for quite some time. And we both were administrators, and we both crossed paths so often. And the moment I met her, I have to share this, folks. She's smart. She's forward-thinking. And she, it, she's always, you're very good at systems approaches. You know how to ask the right questions but never get the right answers. <laughs> 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 Which is it's so the truth. <laughs> it's, it's true. And I thought that when I first met you, and I remember when you came, I was a dean at the time. You came to our dean's council meeting. And when you walked in the room, I had heard your name, but I never met you. I was so, so happy, so proud for so many reasons. So truly, folks, you're getting a gem here in terms of a, a, a professional and a scholar who really knows what she's talking about. So, Candace, my first question to you is this. What emanated all this? You know, what influenced you to explore gender diversity within this particular area, such as senior leadership ranks? So that's a great question to kick off our conversation. You know, my influence is based on what I didn't see. Um, And that's a twofold or two-pronged sort of approach to why I became interested in this role. First, Mm -hmm. you will see that within higher education space, the middle tier, the middle rank, and the career entry ranks are filled with professional women. And so there's no lack of sort of a diversity there. In fact, the statistics are about you know, half and half of of men to women in that particular rank. But when you get up to the senior leadership roles, um, those roles are uh, non-existent. Or if they're Mm -hmm. there, there are very few. So it's really about what I didn't see. You know, Mm -hmm. I think the institution of higher learning of education was created for men and by men and has a long, long history in male centrism, right? And so progress has been made. We can't discount that there are women leaders and there are very good women leaders. 
But while the progress has been made within the senior leadership ranks, the culture continues to be dominated by men, um, even though women of all ethnicities and races are graduating at a greater rate than their male uh, peers. And so the phenomenon is interesting to me because coming from an HR background, I have, you know, uh, several years of HR experience, probably 25 at this point, you look at the policies and procedures from an administrative perspective, because I've been in that role, you mm-hmm. look at any website for any public research university or even non-public ones at this, at this point, and you will see a myriad of artifacts that say they are compliant, they are non-discriminatory in their hiring practices, right. there right. are councils, there are many things. So you would assume, but when you really examine sort of what's happening there, it doesn't equate. And so I became very interested in terms of what's happening. Is something happening? Yeah. Like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm right at the point where I'm collecting and analyzing my data, so I might find nothing. I might find something, but if something is there because there are enough studies that have already been um, done that said something is there. And so I'm trying to figure out why is that. Are women not okay. good at leading? Are there some factors that prevent them from doing it? Mm-hmm. And so that's why I'm here. Great. And in fact, for our listeners, they should be aware. Keep in mind, folks, a lot of the work that Sakandis is focusing on, it has an American point of view because naturally our work, our backyard is where we are. However, I think that what she's doing is transferable to other communities. And so do keep in mind, listeners, as we're speaking today, we're looking from the, the macro view of women in ex- senior executive leadership here in America. And here's an interesting fact for folks, and Candace just touched on something very important. The fact is by 2016, the majority of baccalaureate degree graduates in America were women. And she's absolutely right. That, so the tables have turned, which means that there's greater opportunity for seeing women in leadership roles and all capacities in institutions of higher learning. So I'm personally very excited. So I think that your research is very timely because it's taking the pulse of where things are right now and also potentially for where things are going as it relates to your topic and the focus and the breadth and scope of higher education. And and just a small add, just a small add, as you've mentioned, um, you know, while I've been researching this, you know, my inquiry specifically focuses on the disparity and the construct for women at American universities. However, in my research, I found that this continues to be not only a historic, but an ongoing global challenge, you know, worthy of mention, because the British Council found that um, in their study, the same thing is is a, a phenomenon there as well. So, it's not just local, although my study right. is. And I appreciate your saying that. In fact, many nations are looking to America as a model for how to address this particular phenomenon as well. And so it's very nice to see you making that, that contribution. And it's more than just for doctoral experience. I know personally this is your life, and this is your commitment to help helping improve opportunities for all. And, and that, that, that's, a, that's an important assumption that there's an assumption or several assumptions that people make, especially about women today and executive leadership. I personally have found that many of my bosses 
I've had male bosses and women bosses, and I've enjoyed them both so much and learned so much from each of them. And even as I sit here and speak to you now, I'm recalling some of the faces of those people as well in terms of how much they've impacted me and shaped me to who I am. So I'd love to know, Candace, what are some of your assumptions about women in executive leadership today? Or what are some of the assumptions in general that you may have uncovered from the context of your research? I'm glad you corrected that because I was going to say I have no assumptions. I'm just yeah. kidding. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think from a perspective of what the assumptions are, sort of society speaking about women in executive leadership, is that society still believes, and there's research to support it, that a male boss is better, period. There's, there's dozens of studies that, mm-hmm. you know, I've cited even in my work that I'm doing today that still think even when you present facts to them that there are no differences or the differences are um, not statistically significant, they will still prefer that. So that's one because they are somehow better. Um, Society puts a large responsibility on on leadership being a born attribute and that that born attribute is attributed to men, right? And so while there's some shift here, you know, with all of the social media or social um, context-driven things that are happening in our society with Me Too movement and, um, you know, the Black Girls Rock movement, there's still this large sort of um, feeling towards that male leadership is born and that it's reserved for just men. You know, this, of course, is completely disputed by study after study. Right. Further, there's some sort of idea that women um, can't be leaders because they need to take time out for mm-hmm. some of the traditional roles of parenting, right? And that um, that they can't have both, which is, of course, also not proven. And, and right. there, there are many of them. I, I think that instead of really focusing on, on the assumptions, right, it's, Mm-hmm. I, I think we should really call attention to the fact that those assumptions are, um, there's no merit to them. And that right. we need to start having a conversation about difference in, in leadership and what each individual person brings to the table versus a global assumption about what it is I can or cannot do as a woman. Does that make sense? Well said. Yes, it does. It does. In fact, I'll share this. A couple of years ago, I sat on a screening committee, and uh, at, on this screening committee, it was the committee is comprised of a variety of individuals, gender-wise, both men and women. And so, after the process that we we forwarded candidates, the it came back to us that we wanted there was an additional round, so the fail the the search failed. However, we needed somebody to fill the space of this administrative role very promptly because very critical work needed to continue. And so immediately the hiring manager said, well, we would like to hire someone. Let's get someone in-house who could be interim to serve that role. And so immediately they start making a list. And one of my colleagues who's there made a comment. He's a man. And he said, oh, well, I love her, but isn't she having a baby? And I said, I looked at him. And said very openly, what you said is very discriminatory, and you should not say such things like that, because here we are marginalizing someone because of life opportunities and chances. And, right. and I felt that that was something that was very wrong. 
And even though he felt he, he, he was very serious, he said it very sincerely, I think in his mind, he actually thought that he was doing her a service a by, favor. oh, well, she's absolutely. already busy. And I yep, said, absolutely. Who are you? you see my point? So who is he to make that assumption about what she can and cannot do? I just wanted to hear your take on that, because I know that in, in HR, you see so many incredible things, but folks don't recognize sometimes that even the smallest comments could have significant implications uh, on, on work and things of that, may, that matter. I love that you bring that up, and I love that you bring it up from a male perspective. And so mm-hmm. Edgar Schein talks about organizational culture from a values perspective, right? So he talks about right. the first layer of organizational culture being artifacts, what we can see, what we espouse. And then there's this second layer about our shared values and, and what we come to as an agreement that could be um, very, very different from those artifacts. Right. And, I'm, right. and then there's that basic underlying assumption, which we can't really get to because that's your that's that thing in your gut, your value system right. where you act on is where is where from which all behaviors emanate. Right. So there's those three right. layers. So using your example, the first layer of artifact would say for that institution, we don't discriminate against um, or women that are pregnant. Right. So we have a, right. we have something that says there. Right. And so we right. have a shared value. Our shared value would be some of the things that we, we talk about together. Maybe we don't talk about, but we come to an understanding about what mm-hmm. that is. And then we have that next layer. So he was speaking from that second layer and that third layer in which maybe his upbringing and his family. So we don't want to discount them. We want to just call attention to them and make people know they're, they're, that's where the, the implicit bias and the unconscious bias lives, Right. right? Right. So for him, and, and, and this is probably a case for many women and men, Yes. pregnant women are more um, whatever you want to call it, delicate or fragile. They can make anything, right? So maybe in their upbringing, that's what they were used to. And so notwithstanding that we have a fact or a policy that we don't discriminate against um, women in that category, That simple statement, and if he didn't voice it, if he felt it, his vote would have been from that perspective. Right. Absolutely. So his vote to endorse her or not would have been from that perspective. So the fact that he brought it out and you challenged it may or may not have changed his mind. But that happens on a pervasive basis and is systemic. And that's what my work is trying to uncover is what are these things that are not our policies and procedures that are driving behaviors that keep women out of the C-suite, that keep women out of the executive cabinet levels, and that keep women out of the leadership ranks, irrespective of their um, their ethnicity, right? But then we right. also find that women of color are even more marginalized for that for for. Um, things that have nothing to do with their ability or their experiences or their credentials, right? And so that's mm-hmm. why this work is even more important to me. I love it. For, I love for it. Exact that reason. And I and and I share what you said is absolutely true. I remember the look on his face when he said it. He looked at me very in, intently, as if he did not. Re- he really didn't register what he had said. Hence, mm-hmm. hopefully, the recovery and the healing. Because at the end of the day, what you said is very true. 
it still may or may not have influenced him, but at least he became aware. He's aware that these measures and these statements, these value statements that are printed, they're just not for just for looking pretty and look and being all inclusive on paper. They actually do have significance and can be measured. A system can be measured with them. And so there's a question coming in for you, for you, Candice, but I wanted to share with folks who are listening. You're now listening live with Billy BJ Jones on Everyday Folks Radio. A time now is about 1020. We still have about 40 minutes in our conversation with the lovely Candace Hunter. If you'd like to speak to her or me during our live broadcast, our line is open at 347-539-5372. Again, that is 347-539-5372. And I do see folks that you're not shy in my inbox. I'm getting a number of questions here actually for you, Candace. And my email address, however, is everydayfolkslisten at gmail.com. Again, that is everydayfolks, with an S, listen at gmail.com. So, Candace, I'm going to feel a few of these questions to you because they're really, really good. This first question is coming from Shana, who resides in Denver, Colorado. Thank you for listening, Shana. The question is, what are your predictions, Candace, about women in the workplace and in the executive workforce over the next decade? So thank you for your question. I hope it's not too cold where you are. <laughs> I, you know, that, um, that's a great question. I hope that the numbers continue to rise. We have shown growth in that area. However, mm-hmm. the growth is painstakingly slow. And I guess I will take slow growth over no growth or a backward slide. I believe as more and more women are elected to policy-making and decision-making and influential roles within our um, governmental bodies that we'll start to see shifts, right? Because until there's an understanding, a lived experience understanding about what it means um, to be a woman and to be a leader – and to examine policies from that perspective, you'll get more of the same. And so yeah. I believe that as we start to um, have a shift in the demographics from that perspective, that the, um, the outcomes would be more inclusive. I don't believe that it's going to be drastic. I do believe that the shift will continue in an upward rise or upward tick, but still slowly. So I don't know necessarily what those numbers are. I think women are still sitting at, you know, a very, very low number in terms of uh, Fortune 500 companies' uh, representation. They're still sitting about less than 20% of presidencies at at colleges and universities across the country. So we're looking at growth, but not not, uh, high, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, when you look at the overall scope for right now, Mm Uh, labor census demographics in 2016-2017 said about 46, 47%, 46.8 um, were women represented in the workforce. And wow. while 51%, 51.5% of them were in management and professional positions, mm-hmm. only 29, not 29%, 29, mm-hmm. so one less than 30, were the total women of the CEO positions of all Fortune 500 companies. Wow. In 2017, two nine. And wow. so while 
I think is growing. So hopefully in the next 10 years, we get to 39. I don't know. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's, that's, that's alarming. And it's also, it's interesting because I, I also know that if you look at the num we look at the numbers of students who are entering medical school in America, mm-hmm. close to 70% of the students who are now entering medical school, medical school are women. Absolutely. So, that's a big um, shift. Absolutely. And so I share with my students all the time. I said, the likelihood of you walking into an, a, a health facility and needing care, you're more likely to see a, a female counterpart. And that is amazing. Mm-hmm. And so these numbers, like you, and it also, so I'm bringing this up because I know that your work, it looks at from a higher education standpoint, but it is so transferable, the work you're doing across all platforms. And I know that your research, you're looking at a variety of leadership roles. Because there's so much that informs you further in what's happening. So it Absolutely. necessarily matters not the industry. It matters the, the society in which we live and the times in which we live and, how, and, and what dictates still as a, quote, norm in that process. And so, Billy, you're right. And while I chose specifically to look at um, higher ed, even though this is a, an issue across uh, mm-hmm. industries, that's the space I've spent a lot of my professional career in is higher ed, right? But more importantly, if this particular institution of higher ed are preparing future leaders, future learners, they're graduating Mm -hmm. more women than um, men at this point. I think that the influencers, right, the persons that make the policies and procedures and guide what happens should match or at least more closely mirror the bodies that they serve. Well said. And so to the extent that you have uh, uh, the upper tenured um, faculty that are only, you know, 5% uh, uh, women or even tenure track position for, for black women is at 2.3%. I mean, these numbers are shameful. Mm-hmm. considering True. that you are preparing highly qualified people to assume yes. those roles. So something is That's happening right. there. Yep. Well said. Well said. I agree. And in fact, Candace, I look at your life story. It's incredible. Who or what inspires you to succeed? <laughs> I think, you know, my in- inspiration comes from everyday sources, my family, my friends. Of course, there's the, the big names of people that you could look to, Mm-hmm. But I think it's those small movements that you see. You know, I see my friend Monique, and she is, you know, she was a single mom for a long time, and she was an entrepreneur, and she's amazing. Or I see, um, you know, my friends being able to um, pass through several layers of difficulties in their life and still come out shining. And I want to take snippets of those examples, even from mm-hmm. my own mom, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, how I live my life. So, you know, I have prayer warriors and I have personal cheerleaders and, you know, I have community folks and, and other leaders around me who are strong and positive, but also who are courageous in their, in their voice and their conviction. And I believe that, you know, we all have our biases and, and to the extent that we are courageous enough to acknowledge them, and make sure that we check them when it comes right. to decision-making mm-hmm. about 
you know, who is promoted, who is hired, who is offered opportunity. And this spreads the gamut of um, issues that you would deal with in society, everywhere from housing to access to um, food and public uh, education within urban communities or rural communities, you know, socioeconomic status. I think those things are all powerful tidbits that I can look at others mm-hmm. around me and and use them. And, I, you know, I want to make sure that the trust that people give me to be a leader over the situation that I'm assigned to at the time, I want to make sure that my influence and experience is able to help others find their voice and, and to be bold in their convictions with grace, right? And so right. I think you shared a, 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 a quote about me when I first started that said, you know, that I both succeeded and failed. So right. as a new leader, I was probably a little bit too cocky because I was very smart and I thought that I was smarter than others sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and those things don't blend well. And so I've had the mentors to say, hey, Candace, this is how you temper this. That comes from being fiercely independent and being on my own for a really long time and having mm-hmm. to hustle, mm-hmm. right? And so you start to look at people and say, okay, how, how, do I, how do I make sure that I'm able to exert myself and still be gracious and still be uh, humble about what it is that I have or don't have and then temper that, right? So that's my right. that's how I'm inspired to to do more and to be more and, and to sort of create the model of a person that people are proud to be around and that mm. who are um, who they want to help or who they they see that they can help grow. And and I in turn would be able to pass that on to someone else. So that's that's where the inspiration comes from. Thank you very much for that. Very inspiring to hear as well. In fact, listeners, I see that several of you are emailing us, and Candace, you have an audience of about eight or nine questions that we're going to try to squeeze in over the next half hour. This next question is coming from Gerald from Tennessee. So here's the question. Candace, do you recommend any authors or works that I should read related to your topic? Um. So, yes. So Andres Tapia is, he is a uh, consultant with one of the big name firms, and he wrote a, um, a book. And in fact, it's on my bookshelf that I can't see right now because I could tell you the title. But mm-hmm. I read that book, and it was amazing. And I, I'm thinking of a couple that I can tell you about. Um, uh, trying to remember the title right now. And I'm walking towards it so that I can tell this to you because it's important. It's called the inclusion paradox. Oh, so the inclusion it. paradox, and he's a very um, senior consultant with Corn Ferry. And this mm-hmm. book right now has about dozens and dozens of pages with my little orange stickies because <laughs> it's a great book for really helping you to challenge yourself about your perspective on people. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, Andres is a um, Latin American man, and I think you would do well to um, add that book to your um, to your um, your library. The other book that I want to recommend is by um, Sarah Protecha. She mm-hmm. is, and that's a recent one that I'm reading. She is a graduate of um, the big military academy, 
And she mm-hmm. writes these sort of, I will call them crucibles of leadership from a woman's perspective, right? And so mm. she was one of the first female graduates of the, um, what's it called? The academy that, that uh, is for Is it she military. from Citadel? No, not it's the other one. It's the, I will think of it before I, I get off this call okay. so I can remember. But Sarah Protector, she's only written one book so far. So that's a good one as well. And I actually went to her talk here in the local Virginia community. Um, amazing. So those two would be great to get you started on sort of these topics about what it means to be um, just a woman in a space where other women in, in Sarah's um, place were not welcomed right. and what it means when people are not there to support you. How do you build mm. allies? Yeah. How do you work through trauma? How do you use your inherent leadership skills to advance the things that are systemically designed to hold you back? Mm. Mm. Powerful. In fact, you have a question coming in now from Miami, Florida, right here in my backyard, Candace. And this is from Marta. Marta, thank you for listening. Candace, congratulations on all of your accomplishments. You're a beautiful person, too. What advice do you offer to others who are interested in pursuing a doctoral degree? Todd, that's a great question. You got time? <laughs> <laughs> so... First, oh, it's called West Point Woman. Before I oh, finish, got it. West, West Point, Point Woman. Yes. Yes, West Point. So, got it. if you're interested in pursuing a doctorate degree and you're not going to do it full time, chances are you're going to have to pay for it yourself. So, be prepared to be in a lot of debt for a while. Um, chances are, if you're going to go full time, you may get a fellowship. Um, so, be prepared to not have a personal life. <laughs> Um, be prepared to lose a few friends Um, and then outside of that be prepared to also have you know so so some of the great things about pursuing a doctoral program that people tell you you know it comes with prestige and respect but they don't tell you about that that hustle and that grind where you question your sanity and you question your intelligence and you question your abilities right so a, a Pursuing a doctorate degree is not like you know, people say, I have two masters. Well, good for you. It's not the same thing. So it's pursuing not. a doctorate degree takes a different level of writing skills. Takes a diff- I thought I was a very bright and critical thinker. I was wrong. How hmm. <laughs> um, Well, I think that, you know, coming from an HR perspective, right, you uh-huh. are very colorful. You talk to people about, you know, you, 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 there's stories to tell. Right. There's, there's stories that you hear. From a doctoral perspective, you are really writing to facts. You're writing to what's been discovered and what's not and how you can add to the literature. So you, you have this very critical lens, and then every writing is not good writing, so you have right. to read right. everything with this powerful eye, whereas before I that would have true. partially assumed that if it's in a um, peer-reviewed journal, that it was probably good stuff. Well, that's not true. Right, right. So t- 
to the extent that you have to be a critical thinker for your critical thinking really helps you to hone in on your skill. And it really helps you to hone in on your subject matter. So think about what it is that you want to study, why you want to study that um, subject matter, and why do you want to get the doctorate degree? Is it going to make you um, better? And then if you weren't doing the job that you were going to do when you got the doctorate degree, would you still be okay with the effort, the expense, and the personal sacrifices that you would have to give up in order to get it? Because mm. all of those things are true. It's true. In fact, I, I love what you said, Candace. And what, one of the things that the doctoral experience does, it, it encourages you to question every possibility. And you start seeing the, the world for what it's worth through those epistemological and ontological assumptions. You begin to really understand that somewhere in there lies truth. And you have the potential to, to uncover that, to pr- produce it and contribute it, distribute it. And there is so much power and, and, and movement in that. But also the getting there is a lot. <laughs> Everything you said, I'm sitting here, it's been 16 years since I graduated, but I'm looking back, I'm like, yes, I, I've, I've done that. I remember those things very distinctly. And recently I am now, I, I'm chairing my ninth dissertation for a colleague as well. And so now having served on nine other dissertation experiences, what you just said should be like a book, a manual. (laughs) And I think it's important that people hear it because people go into it and they see it's nice to have the the reality check or at least the end result and what it can offer you and what it can contribute to the world. But the getting there is also the most critical. You're going to have to make some sacrifices and adjustments. There is a question well, you know, coming in from – go ahead. I'm sorry. Before I get oh, to the next question, we'll hear your comment. St- go for it. There are statistics that say there's about 2% or 3% of the world that are doctoral prepared candidates and that a good – there's, what, 60 or 70% of people that are all but dissertation, meaning they never completed yeah. that degree. The coursework, um, if you're a bright person and you got accepted to that program, you will finish the coursework. You'll finish. That's not Absolutely. an issue. The coursework is the core. I finished my coursework in three and a half years, full time mm-hmm. job, full time student. The dissertation, where you have to really um, contribute something original to the literature or expand on somebody's idea to make it original to the body of work that you're studying, right? And then you're on your own. There's not a cohort of students to support you during classwork. There are no discussions. Right. There, it's just right. you and yourself. And to the extent that you're not self-motivated, you will have difficulty. You will probably still finish maybe a longer time. There's some people that are on their eighth or ninth year of trying to get their uh, terminal degree in this way. And, and I say that if you don't, figure that out up front, it's a very stressful process. Originally, Candace, I had a question for you about some of the barriers that you've had to encounter in your career. So I'd like for you to respond to that, but I have to share this. There's a question that just came in from Natalia from Austin, Texas. Listen to this, which is like the antithesis to that question. What do you find most rewarding, excuse me, what would you say is the most winning moment in your career? Well, that question made me smile. 
Yeah, that's, um, I'd love to hear that. I'd love to hear that from your I'd love to hear your response to that, too. I think the most winning moment in my career is when one of my past employees called and shared that they did something that I said or recommended that got them a promotion or got them mm-hmm. a, highlighted or, you know, I gave a presentation and I did so well and I remembered what you said and I did it. You know, those kinds of things are so rewarding. The other thing is that I spent a lot of years in the classroom as an adjunct faculty member Mm -hmm. um, during my time at a couple of major institutions in the South Florida area. And another winning moment for me was when I taught a class one time and this woman came to me. She called, actually, um, maybe about a good year or so after I had completed the class. And she said, Miss Hunter, this is, this is just so weird. I don't, I don't believe I'm even doing this. But she said, you were so influential to me in that classroom that I quit my job and went back to school full time. This was a wow. young woman that was an engineer, and she was already at a, at a six-figure salary, but she wanted to switch careers. But she was so fearful of the judgment and the shame that she would get from leaving her very, very, very good job at the time. Right. Right. To do something that she was really passionate about and wanted to do. And she's doing amazingly well now. And I think that was the the winningest moment of my whole life beside my children. <laughs> hmm. And in fact, that's a great segue to the next question. Nigel from London would like to know, how do you manage to do all that you do, Candace, from raising kids and balancing a career? So I visited London uh last year and it was great my aunt lives there <laughs> mm-hmm. so um but yeah so one of the things i i opened i answered that question saying i visited london because that's what i do i travel and mm-hmm. so i have to have balance right so one of the things i do is make sure that i have balance and that i center myself in the things that are meaningful which means that some right, things get right. left to the side right right um, sometimes I disconnect and sometimes I, I, I get frazzled because I'm human and it happens. But then I go back to, you ask what inspires me. I go back to that, whether it's leaning on friends who are, who are at the time stronger than I am and can provide a good listening ear for me. And I mm-hmm, have mm-hmm. some really, really, really good, um, women leaders in my corner that serves as my personal cabinet for that. Um, I have, um, I'm I'm a crafter, so I make a lot of paper crafts. So sometimes at night it will be very late, 2 o'clock in the morning when I can't write anymore. Instead of sleeping, I will go make a greeting card for someone and mail it. Really? Just the joy (laughs) that comes from them calling me to say, oh, my God, I just got a card in the mail, makes me so happy. And so sometimes life is busy and sometimes you don't get a lot of sleep, but I have to find balance. You know, I'm also an avid runner, so I run a lot of marathons and half marathons. And so exercising, um, you know, keeps the good endorphins pumping. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are moments during my dissertation process and my PhD process where I've had some meltdowns and I had to really just take a step back and say, okay, what is your purpose? Why are you doing this? Is it still important? And if the answer yes. is yes, then you move forward. You recenter, you refocus, you move forward. 
you know, if the answer is no, then you'd make a decision. It's a hard one, but you pivot. You know, so I'm also very resolute in the decisions that are important to me. It's like, okay, this is what you need to do. Do it. Well said. In fact, we all have those positive self-talk. So if, if you're ever considering any major endeavor that will be eventually life-changing for your life, it's only natural to have those moments. The fact is, if you, the fact that you're having the conversation, even as with yourself, is a good start. It says that you're also redirecting or reevaluating your own steps. And as you order them towards the next pathway in your life, or, or at least the journey in your life, it's helping reaffirm the choices you've made. And it sounds to me, you've made some amazing choices. And you've also overcome significant barriers within your own life. And those barriers, mm-hmm. they're part of your story, but they don't all, they obviously don't, they're not the reasons or at least the end to all the story. It's only the beginning, actually. So what do your children think, Candace, about all of this that you're doing? All of these, you have two incredible children. One is in college and one is in high school. Yes. And I know that having a mother like Candace Hunter must be very special for them. So what do they say about you? What are some of the comments or feedback that they get? Because that's actually a question that came in from one of our listeners as well. So what do my children think? <laughs> yes. My children are teenagers. <laughs> my life is neither incredible <laughs> nor amazing to them, right? right? They're both like, why do you have on mom jeans, especially my teenage daughter? Why are you wearing that lipstick, mommy? So, however, they are proud. You know, my son is always asking me, when are you going to be finished with this school? Because as soon as you graduate, I'm calling you Dr. Mom. Oh. So, um, <laughs> and, and for my daughter, this journey is, is over a quarter of her lifespan at this time, right? So she, um, I think they're both excited. There are moments when, you know, my son, he had, he had initially made a decision not to go to college, for which as an educator, I was incredibly mm-hmm. disappointed mm-hmm. and very traumatized. Um, and however, you know, he called me not too long ago, and he said, I have something important to tell you, but don't tell anyone else um, until, I, until I'm until i really sure. So his something that he had to share with me was, I think I'm ready for college, Mommy. I can do this, yeah. and I need your help. And I said, oh, okay, <laughs> tell me more. And so he starts to share, and I said, well, what can I do to help? You know, how can right. I facilitate this for you? Mm-hmm. So he said, mm-hmm. you know, you, you've worked at a lot of colleges. You know people. Well, I need financial aid. Well, I need this. So he starts asking the questions that tells me that he had been paying attention to the things I had shared with him from before. And mm-hmm. on his own initiative, he met with the dean. He met with a counselor. He enrolled mm-hmm. for his classes. And he was mm-hmm. all set. And then he called and said, hey, are you going to pay? <laughs> So I said, absolutely, I'm going to pay. So that was a very, very proud moment. And the fact that he was, um, that I had left the door open for him after all the the frustration I had felt from before, that I had created the space that he felt strong enough to come and say to me, hey, mom, this is what I want to do. And I said, well, what are you going to tell daddy? He's like, when I'm all done with this. So, oh, you know, he, well, he told him, no, he told him at the, the, when he got fully registered and everything, but he didn't want anybody to know through the process, I guess. Got it. He figured that if something didn't go wrong, mommy right. will preserve his secret. So that right, was pretty right. exciting. 
So, yeah, Aww. my children, they might, I'm just mommy to my children, as most mothers are. I, I wish him all the best. Congratulations in that endeavor as well. Must have been, I could only imagine how you felt on the inside as you were having that, a very adult conversation with your son. I and, agree. You know, Candace, you're doing all this incredible work and focusing on so many incredible things. And I just learned now that you have this craft background as well. And I'm, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, next, you'll probably have a food channel and a food network. <laughs> Oh, I'm a very good cook, but I'm not having a food channel. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, all of these things make one incredible story, the story of Candace Hunter. So Nicole asks the question from London. So you have a couple fans there. She says, have you considered writing a book about your life, Candace, um, or your life experiences or a book about your research? Uh, I think you do well. (laughs) I appreciate you, and I, I, I want to... Uh, send your words from your lips to God's ears and to the universe. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so I have, I have, and in fact, several people have asked that. Um, In fact, I was just having a conversation with one of my mentors, um, Dr. Taylor, and she says, you know, I think you have a book here. I, I, you know, she just kind of said it. I I think you have a book here. Um, In addition to that, I'd like to write, um, depending on, on the outcomes of my research, I'd like to write some additional information. You know, one of my phrases is let's continue the conversation. Right. Gendered leadership is, is a thing, right? It's a thing that's right. not um, recognized and spoken with the level of courage that it needs to be spoken, right? So I don't believe that in your lifetime and my lifetime that we would be able to fix this. And, right. and I believe we're not able to fix it in this lifetime because it is something that is founding, institutionalized, and systemic, right? These are principles that are at the core of who we are in this particular society, in right. most societies the world over, where mm. women have been marginalized, even though we can find many examples of great leaders, and so until we start, you know, it's like if you have a, a crack in your foundation of the house and the wall uh, showing signs of, of, of um, damage internally, right. you can keep putting spackle on it and painting over it. But if the crack remains in the foundation, the spackle will continue to be damaged and more cracks will appear in the walls, right? Yep. So that's what's happening. Unless we fix the founding and institutionalized systems until we get to those, what Edgar Schein talks about as the basic underlying principles and bubbling up to our shared values until we address things at those levels and dismantle them systemically, we will just keep putting Band-Aids on it, right? So we, why do you believe that there are dozens of Fortune 500 organizations, almost most of the major institutions from higher education to technology to anything, you will go into these organizations and find programs for professional development, for mentoring, for women's um, leadership seminars, but nothing changes. You can make all the programs that you want. You can send people to all the professional development that you want. Unless unless you change those – those biases and those, you know, those value systems that 
drive behavior irrespective of policies until you right. change that. You have the same, you still have that cracked foundation, yep. right? And so that's why I believe at this level, at my level and at my research um, level is that we start to be courageous about the conversation. You can't muzzle yourself about these important things, right? So right. Right. I'm not raising this as a fully functional expert yet because I'm almost done. What I'm doing is serving as an enthusiast is what my pastor says. Serve as an enthusiast who's ready to be engaged in the conversation, who's ready mm-hmm. to show up and mm-hmm. show out about the things that are systemic. Candace, have and you that's ever where con- I am. Have you ever considered exploring other underrepresented communities? So, you know, from being a woman that's in the intersection of that living in America, right? So on the surface, right. I'm a black woman, but I'm also an immigrant. I'm, you know, I'm a, so there's, there's so many things that's happening here. So in terms of exploring other communities, I don't think I get to avoid them. Right, I don't. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think mm-hmm. I get to not speak about the conversation of mm-hmm. of, of race and ethnicity and gender. I mm-hmm. don't think I get to exclude the transgendered woman or the transitioning woman. I don't think I get to exclude any of those. I think my focus. We can't do everything, so my focus is on on the woman holistically. You know, in my research, I think I reserve the right to pinpoint differences if differences are found within. Uh, race and ethnicity, which I know they probably will. But my focus is on the whole woman, whoever she shows up as. And Candace, when is your when is your anticipated completion date of your research? So I'm hoping to be fully defended by the end of May, early June. Okay. So very, very um, soon. Very soon. Yes, very, very soon. And that's a great plug for the next set, next steps for you. You've done all these things. This, this, this season of your life is about to end in terms of the doctoral candidate experience. Now you're going to be Dr. Candace Hunter. And by the way, that has a beautiful ring to it. I can't ah. wait to call you Dr. Hunter. But also, what's next? So after you've achieved that, any other endeavors or things, prospects and things you'd like to explore in the next steps, whether it be professionally in the field of research or other avenues? So that's a great question, and I have been thinking about that on my own. I work at a great organization now who serves many, many institutions of higher learning, and I Mm -hmm. love the work that they do for these institutions, which is very student-focused. In terms of higher ed and student-focused, I am really, really interested and concerned about the full student experience and what we can provide as administrators and faculty to make sure that they're successful in their journey there and beyond. And so to the extent that I'm also very passionate and interested about this research in women leadership and gendered leadership, I'd like to continue the the conversation there. You know, I'd like to make sure that I get a couple of articles out, really researching and digging into this topic more. In In a dissertation sort of, PhD doctoral student journey, you don't have a lot of time for which you can collect data. You have a short window. Um, In many, many aspects, you're able to collect all the data during the time allotted. Sometimes you're not, and so you have to use that as a limitation to your study. Um, 
and sometimes you're able to. And so depending on what happens here in this space for me, I'd like to extend that research. And so maybe the data collection time to get a more um, a larger pool of women participating in this very timely and important topic to extend out that research, right? And so perhaps with the platform of being uh, a fully prepared doctor um, research uh, practitioner that I can go out and sort of market my study a little bit more because I'd like to find statistical significance if there's something there. And so to the extent that you have something tangible to say, hey, this is what I hear, this is what I found, and this is how we start continuing, start to have the conversation or continue the dialogue about how we really courageously address the biases that prevent women from moving up into the leadership ranks. And so only at that time can we start to say, okay, these are the things that we're doing and we're doing them systemically to remove, to remove the barriers. Mm. And so that, that includes some writing and some talking and some speaking. So um, I'm ready. I'm ready. I want to share, folks. Right, we've come down to the last three minutes of our segment here. I want to add one more thing for Dr. Hunter to consider. I think she would be a phenomenal candidate for a TED Talk. Because not only are you just great on air and voice, you're also just engaging. You're very inspiring. And I think that you have such a a powerful message and voice to deliver in that forum, too. I I definitely want to endorse that. And also, thank you. Thank you for your time. And also be aware, this is not the last time you're going to be here. And we're going to be having more conversations, especially for our reunion segment in the next few months where I get to bring you back and see how things are going with you and what are the other incredible things you'll be exploring at that time. But folks, we thank you so much for being here, Candace. Truly, you're an inspiration, and we wish you all the best on your final steps and journey toward Dr. Candace Hunter. I think this is a very special time of the year, life for you, and above all, a good year for you, wishing you the very best in your journey. Thank you so much for having me, and I appreciate the audience uh, engagement and comments, and I look forward to chatting with you all on another occasion. And I'll share this with everyone. Candace Hunter is an amazing colleague of mine, and if you'd like to participate, whether it be in her respective work that she's doing now or just to stay in touch, I'm going to be placing a, who, a link for her social media feed, whatever she preferred that I use, under my Who I'm Supporting section of BillyPaulJones.com and the Everyday Folks Books Radio website, so that way you're able to stay in touch with her in that regard. And, and also, um, Billy, just one last thing. Uh, if you are a female or woman administrator in a uh, public research university, you can also participate in the survey. I'm still collecting data at www.leadershipcultureandgender.com. I'm going to place that link on my page as well. So that way, folks, you can help support Candace in her incredible work. Provide your feedback. Provide your insights. Folks, thank you so much for listening here on Everyday Folks Radio. Tune in this Saturday for another exciting segment at 3 p.m., with an EKS on Journey into Passion. And I will be returning the subsequent Sunday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with more shows and incredible topics. Until next time, thank you for listening and have a pleasant day.